Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whether your business needs cars, vans, or larger commercial vehicles, you can rent from the best lineup in the UK with Enterprise. And with flexible long-term rental, you can get vehicles for as long as you need them, from minutes to months. Whatever the mission, Enterprise's mobility experts can build a bespoke solution to suit your business needs. Visit enterprise.co.uk forward slash business to find out more. I'm Barry Davis, football commentator for over 50 years. Lee, interesting. Oh, look at his face! Just look at his face! And on July the 30th, 1966, I was lucky enough to be at Wembley and watch on with immense pride as the Queen presented Bobby Moore with the World Cup winning trophy. And Bobby Moore comes up to receive the Jules trophy for England. England are the world champions. England have come close to immortality a few times since, notably in 1990, 1996, and then Euro 2020. The fact that no team has matched the achievements of the 66 team makes the moment even more unique, even more remarkable that Her Majesty herself was there to hand Bobby Moore the Jules Rimet trophy. Throughout her incredible reign, the Queen has shown her support at various major sporting events, and we shall miss her presence. You're listening to Her Majesty and 66 on TalkSport. On the 22nd of August 1960, England was chosen as the host for the 1966 World Cup, beating rival bidders Spain and West Germany. It was the first tournament to be held in a country that was affected directly by World War II. In the years leading up to the tournament, the swinging 60s was in full flow here in Britain, with music and films very much the main source of entertainment. There was a cultural revolution taking place, with London at the very heart of it. This, ladies and gentlemen, is London. Swinging London, it's been called, though some people might find a different adjective. Social rebels have taken over in what seems more like an invasion than a revolution, because they've got their own new language that is way out and weird. John, so far, all British pop stars have not made a tremendous impact on the States. How do you think you're going to fare? I mean, I just hope we go all right. You know. We'll just do what we do, stand there and sing and twitch. Well, what comes next, Twiggy? A film, I hope. Have you had any acting experience? Mm, not actual acting. I've kind of worked in front of a camera. I've got a bob or two, some decent clothes, a car. I've got my health back and I ain't attached. But I ain't got me peace of mind. And if you ain't got that... You ain't got nothing. Football was nowhere near the cultural phenomenon that it is now, as football journalist and World Cup winning captain Bobby Moore's ghostwriter, Nigel Clark, recalls. Until England won the World Cup, football did take 
a second place behind films and and uh, and theater and drama and general entertainment winning the world cup put everybody on a, on a different plane. And Bobby was fortunate enough to deal with that well. At some stages, when you were out with Bobby, he was treated like a film star, with great reverence, and people used to follow him and come up to him. And uh, of course, there wasn't selfies in those days. And, uh, but so people were, were, were obliged to stand with Bobby and ask him for an autograph or a picture. And he, he was a, a kind of, film star in his own right and a very nice person as well. Legendary sports broadcaster Jim Rosenthal was lucky enough to be at the World Cup 66 and can remember what life was like in the years leading up to the tournament. Well, they called it the swinging 60s and that was about right. There was an explosion of colour. I think London was called the swinging city on the front cover of Time magazine, a massive American magazine. There were high fashion mini skirts, Mary Quant, um, particularly bobbed hairstyles uh, uh, for the ladies. The guys' flower shirts came in, f- and uh, the Beatles were were banging along uh, uh, as well at, at that time. Um, it was it was supermodel Twiggy was around in '66 too. It was it was a real fun time, and and um, as a teenager, you were emerging from the darkness and a bit of austerity from the '50s and post-war, obviously as well. And uh, it, it was it was a fun time to be around the UK in that time. Jim Rosenthal there. And I must agree that the whole atmosphere building up to it was amazing. I was trying very hard to get into the ITV team so I could do a bit of commentary on it. Football had traditionally been seen as popular among the working class, not just here in Britain, but across the world. Talk Sports Royal correspondent Rupert Bell explains how this mirrored the royal family's view on the sport. If you put the Queen's reign in context, the world has shifted seismically because when she came to the throne, we were just coming out of the Second War and the country was being rebuilt. That was one of the reasons why the Festival Britain was put on in 1951 to help the country come out of the sort of difficulties after the Second World War. She came to the throne in the early 50s and again if you look at society then it was a very different thing. Was there any live coverage of football? No. Of course it was important and we knew that for most people going to the football um, particularly in the in the big industrial towns of the time it was the release for all people to go to the game on a Saturday afternoon. You look at the attendance figures, they were enormous. But in terms of the profile, there would have probably been an element of the way certain elements of society would have looked down on it slightly patronisingly. But the World Cup in 1966 clearly was evidence of a change going on in society in this country. You look what was happening in the 60s with the emergence of you know, Beatlemania and the way the pop scene changed, the fashion scene changed. You know, Britain was the social and cultural epicentre of the world for a period and we had the good fortune to win the World Cup. So suddenly Britain looked, you know, it was the swinging 60s, it was cool to be British and football was part of that because clearly it was a pretty cool thing to win the World Cup. So that was, in many ways, a big changing point. The 11th of July, 1966 was an incredibly special moment for this nation as Her Majesty opened the World Cup ceremony at Wembley Stadium. I am very pleased that this country is acting as host for the final phases of the World Cup. I welcome all our visitors 
and feel sure that we shall be seeing some fine football. It now gives me great pleasure to declare open the eight World Football Championships. The Queen's presence at the opening ceremony was a unique and joyous occasion. It's very special for us every time the Queen comes to a sporting or major occasion. And this was the game of the people. And here she was, full of smiles, waiting to enjoy it. Here's Jim Rosenthal again. It was typically low-key. There she was, um, and it was all in black and white, by the way, and no colour telly. So it was, and she said um, in her normal clipped reserve tones um, we are pleased to be the hosts and we're expecting to see some fine football that was the young queen saying that and we went that'll do let's let's get on with the game as it happened the opening game a goalless draw was Uruguay wasn't that great but she was there she was there and, and which was which was the main thing and, and nobody at that stage wondered does she care about football Is she got no, no, no one you know the young queen was there to open the tournament there was a definite buzz um, but will we win it? I'm, I'm not sure that, that that was the main thought. I think there was it was the first time that England had staged this tournament and it was great to, to, great to have it and great to have all England matches at Wembley too. I was a football fan then and me and thousands of others, the best players from around the world, were going to come and play in our front garden, if, if, if you like. And you see, there wasn't the knowledge. You, you, you hadn't seen these players in, running around because there were no, there were no videos. There was no, there was no there was no sports channels. The Queen wasn't known for having a big interest in football, but when it came to big events taking place in this country, she wanted to get involved and she wanted to show her support. Here's Royal Correspondent Hugo Vickers. You couldn't help but be excited by it, and and, and you know it's like anything. If you go to something that you don't go to terribly often, it is terribly interesting, you know, to see see how it goes. Of course, it was this this extraordinarily exciting match, and then of course all the team came up, and there was Harold Wilson and Princess Marina and the Duke of Kent. They were in the royal box, and you know they all trooped past and and received the cup. And I mean. Britain had been going through such a dismal time at that point economically. We'd had a Labour government since 1964 and, you know, sort of devaluation of the pound and all these sort of things. And so it was just an incredible boost for the nation altogether. Ahead of 66, the England manager Alf Ramsey, who would later be knighted by the Queen, made a bold prediction. England would win the World Cup. The late legendary World Cup winning goalkeeper Gordon Banks gave his reaction to Alf Ramsey's confident prediction a few years back. What a day! Gordon Banks! Take that out of the net! I remember the time, yeah, that uh, music, everything, yeah, every fashion, everything was like, seems though it was changing. And to be part of that was something really, really special. You know, it was, it was just great. It really was. And wherever we went, you know, out to the restaurant with a wife or got the pictures with, with, with your son. Uh, you know, people come up and, you know, shake your hand and, and uh, it was just, oh, it was absolutely just different, completely different. It was fantastic, it really was. When Alf Ramsey said we were going to win the World Cup in 66, no, we, we, we didn't really, <laughs> we didn't really look at it like that at the time. I've always said this, and, and I mean it sincerely, that nobody knows the start of a World Cup, all those international teams being involved in a tournament, and none of them know exactly what's going to happen. So, no, I, I just said to myself, all I want to happen is that the lads give it a hundred percent 
We go out there, we help each other to play, we play as, as good as we can, play as a team, and just hope that we get the right results. That, that, that was my thoughts when I walked up for that tunnel for that first game. That made our lives uh, and, and everything about us uh, completely different. And uh, we, we, we realised how big it is, you know, and how it was shown all over the world and everybody was, would be watching. And it was just, just wonderful, really was. The prospect of, of seeing these great players and of seeing England taking part as well I mean, dear Alf Ramsey, the manager, said, yes, we will win the World Cup, which was the quote that all everyone jumped upon. But he had to say that. He had to say that, and he was slightly spun, to be quite honest, saying it. Did I think we could win it? Of course I did. I always supported Alf Ramsey right the way through to the end. England improved as the tournament went on, inspired by the nation's growing support. It was the first World Cup to be broadcast live on television in the UK, on both the BBC and ITV, albeit, of course, in black and white. As an avid England fan, a teenage Jim Rosenthal couldn't believe his luck when he managed to arrange tickets for every game at Wembley, including the final, where Her Majesty was present. I pulled a little stroke that I joined the England Supporters Club in the February for not very much money, and I applied for tickets at Wembley, and I got 10 Wembley tickets, including the final, um, for £25, which I thought was decent value at the time. And again, I just passed my driving test. I had my old battered 1100 that I drove from Oxford to, to Wembley Stadium for every game. And I'd found my place where I stood for the next 10 matches. And um, the Queen was there as well. So the England Supporters Club, and of course England played every game at Wembley. So I was really, really lucky to see, to see the whole story unfold. After the controversial quarterfinal win over Argentina... England took on Portugal in the semi-final, a team of immense attacking quality. There was indeed concern about whether they might be a bit too good for England because they had a fellow called Eusebio. Eusebio. This man can manufacture a chance out of nothing. Oh, beautiful football. There's three defenders there. Eusebio. Oh, my word. Have you ever seen anything like that? Bobby Moore's ghostwriter, Nigel Clark, spoke about the growing anticipation and the excitement around the tournament as England got closer to that famous final. We were lucky because we played at Wembley and it was a, it was performance by Bobby Sharp at Wembley that first ignited hope. He's got a tremendous goal, a long-range right-foot shot that really took the roof off Wembley and suddenly there was some sort of belief beginning to grow and it was apparent before they played Argentina that this was going to be the match that could make or break Alf, make or break Bobby, make or break England. And of course it was the battle where Ratchin was sent off and uh, Jeff Hurst scored a memorable goal from Bobby's free kick. And suddenly the overall feeling was that we had beaten the best team in the tournament and that we could now go on to win the World Cup. Although Alp was a great admirer of Portugal and Eusebio, he thought England could beat them. And he, he kept on to the, to the team, we can win this, we can win this. And of course we did win it. And suddenly there was a fresh hope and belief throughout the country that we really could win the World Cup. England are in the final of the World Cup. We will never forget this night 
at Wembley. A sensational, superb victory. Bobby Tarleton getting the two goals. And Eusebio breaks down in tears in the centre of the pitch. But in the final, we will be facing our old rivals, the Germans. Alf was a great admirer of German football, great admirer of, of, of their discipline, their players, their structure, their strategy. And he carefully planned his tactics to make sure that we never gave Germany time on the ball. And with those assets, Alf was sure they could do something and he was sure we could do something and he was sure the fans would get behind and play their part in what was just 90 minutes of glory. Here's Jim Rosenthal again. I think the semi-final was huge, to be quite honest. Uh, the, the, and and um, Eusebio in that semi-final, for, you know, for, and it was a fantastic game of football. Um, and Bobby Charlton helped England through. And I think on the back of that, you thought, you thought right, OK, you're OK, now, now we're there. We're not gonna we're not gonna lose the final in front in front of our own fans at at Wembley, but that that was a, that was a terrific game and England really walked the precipice. It's the World Cup finals. You you know you're not gonna get a, a minnow at that stage of the tournament, are you? You've got to be good to it to to win the World Cup. The Argentina game, of course, that was that was a really interesting one with uh, against Sir Ralph Ramsey saying don't swap shirts with them and branding them animals I and mean, you can imagine doing that now to an international team um, but it was it was it was a clash of footballing cultures that I think and when you play Germany you know pretty well that wasn't going to be a cultural clash that we if we, we were familiar with the team we were familiar with the West Germans uh, uh, as they were then England for the first time in their history had reached the World Cup final the feeling was absolutely amazing the pressure though was on them. After beating Portugal and leading up to the final, I remember how nervous I was, and most people in the country were feeling just the same. So how were the players thinking about the possibility of winning it and shaking hands with the Queen? Here's Gordon Banks. We get in the paper, you know, the, the, the local papers, the morning papers, and uh, reading about, you know, we're there in the final of the World Cup. The fans were absolutely fanatical. The nearer it got to the day, obviously, the, the more uh, the nerves kicked in. The morning of the match, there was about five of us, I think, and we said, come on, we'll have a walk into Hendon. You know, it was only just down the road, it wasn't very far. Uh, just have a stroll around the shops down there. As we come out of the hotel, <laughs> there was a few people there, <laughs> and they were wishing us, wishing us very little, only about maybe about 10, 10 or 15, and they were wishing us the best. And this was this was in the morning, you know, we just had breakfast, you know, <laughs> so we walked down there. We started strolling around the shops, but it didn't take long before we we thought we wanted to get back, you know, because uh, one or two people coming up to us and everything, so we thought, no, we'll get By the time we got back, now, <laughs> there was another, another 20 outside. So we're now, like, pushing ourselves through to get back in the hotel. An estimated audience of 32.3 million viewers tuned in to watch the World Cup final. Of the thousands who got to watch the match in person were the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. Royal historian Hugo Vickers discussed the significance of Her Majesty being at Wembley that day. Her presence that day would have been 
you know, incredibly important because the monarch did not always go to, as I say, did not always go to these football matches. It's been more recent that, that messages have been given through the, the clothes that the Queen has worn. But of course, the most crucial thing is she should be easily identifiable from a long distance away. You know, obviously you'd know where the royal box was and she would be in the centre of it, but there'd be a lot of other people there too. And so on these occasions, um, she does wear very, very striking colours in order to be seen. And uh, there she was, you know, at the final um, representing Britain. I think it's fair to say that the final was a classic. It didn't start that way. The crowd was nervous and so were the players. But the way the story was told with Germany scoring first... England equalising. And England going in front. And right in the last seconds of the 90, the equaliser from Germany. Into extra time, where England were so much better than the other side, helped by the most disputed goal that's ever been scored in world football, when Jeff Hurst's shot came down from the post and did it, did it not cross the line. And then right at the end, Jeff Hurst completed his hat-trick, and at that moment, some people came running onto the pitch. Dennis Walsterholm, the BBC commentator, came out with a classic commentary remark, which is the best that's ever been made. Some people are on the pitch, he said. They think it's all over. It is now as the ball rocketed into the net. 4-2 to England. And here comes Hurst, he's got... Some people are on the pitch, they think it's all over. It is now. It is all over. England are the world champions. The crowd are on the pitch now, but who cares? This is the greatest moment in the history of English football. England had superstars all over the pitch. Even when you look back at the team now, you could see how good they were. But the importance of the captain, the man who would be handed the trophy by the Queen, his influence just cannot be understated. I think he was the leader. He, he was he was one of these players never, who, who like you can always tell class in any sportsman. Just never looked in a hurry. That expertise and that quality and the dignity that he had. Um, but I think those that know and have, thankfully now people look back and, and, and paint him in, in the right light. But he had extraordinary skills that were discarded. Bobby Moore committing an ugly foul. You'd have to look very hard to find one of those. Legendary World Cup winning goalkeeper Gordon Banks recalled the incredible on-pitch celebrations. The tension, everything just went out the body and uh, we knew we'd won it and uh, it was just a, a great thrill. You know, thinking like I told you, not knowing what was going on, but it, it had happened for us. And now we were running around that field with the World Cup in our hand uh, and watching, the, even, the, even the Germans were, were, were giving us a, a, a lovely 
round of applause as we went around there. Uh, but of course, the England fans are going absolutely berserk, and we were, we took it in turns. Bob Bobby made sure that every one of us had a had a, a little run with that with that uh, World Cup in our hand, and we all got a, a round of applause. And then he, he'd take it back and then give it to us somewhere else. And and then uh, we had the photograph taken uh, at the end uh, with the World Cup, and uh, it, it was oh just fantastic. <laughs> So we were turning around, who's got the cup now? Like, you know, we were waiting for them to come up. Because they'd stop, they'd stop at the crowd for a minute with the World Cup. Like, you know, we'd be, we'd be sort of slightly jogging, but we'd be in front of them. So we turned around, and they were in twos and threes. And, oh, but it was lovely. Yeah, we'd go up and wave to somebody and what have you, but it was, it was great, lovely, wonderful, wonderful day. Teenage Jim shed a few tears, I think, because you're, you're right in it. And it's the best feeling in the world. You are the world champions, for, you know, for the first time. Didn't know it was for the only time, sadly. But at that moment, it was unbridled joy. And, and people genuinely felt that in, in the city, the swinging city. Now we've got a swinging World Cup winning team as well. And um, have that the rest of the world. Bobby Moore's ghostwriter, Nigel Clark, was present at the Wembley Stadium and described the atmosphere that day. What I can remember most of all is how amazing it was with the singing and the chanting and suddenly looking around the stadium and seeing there was no fan segregation. So there was English England fans with their banners in alongside German fans with their banners. There was a, a kind of a, a, an acceptance of what had happened, a World Cup final, the hosts had won it, and people were joyous. Al said to me, he can still remember on the journey home, the coach being slowed by traffic, people standing at the roadside crying other people kneeling down and, and, and uh, praying, and this universal rejoicing. England won the World Cup, beating West Germany of all people, and Jeff Hurst had got a Wembley hat-trick, a World Cup hat-trick. There was pure and utter joy, and that's what Alf said gave him as much pleasure as anything else, the reaction of the fans. As Bobby Moore climbed the steps, to collect a trophy that England had never won. Everybody could see that he was wiping his hands on his kit to make sure that his hands would be as clean as possible after a match which had been played in pretty miserable weather at times. And madness to the Queen, Bobby Moore comes up to receive the Jules trophy for England. Only 12 inches high, solid gold, and it means England are the world champions. Here is the late World Cup winning captain describing that moment. When I just approached the top of the stairs and come around the corner for the first time, all I could visualise was uh, the Queen in shining white gloves. You know, and we'd been playing on a very, very wet pitch, and all I could think of is dirty, wet, muddy hands. I can't possibly shake hands with her like this. And the first thing I could think of was to clean my hands, and which I did on top of uh, my lovely laid-out velvet just prior to meeting her. You know, I suppose it might have been a silly thing to do, um, you know, to many, many people, but it was just an immediate reaction was that, my goodness me, those lovely white gloves, I can't dirty them. Royal historian Hugo Vickers gave us the Queen's perspective on that iconic moment. 
Well, I think it was pretty quick, you know, just going past. And so I'm sure she congratulated him. But in those days, you know, again, you didn't expect the um, Queen to make a sort of long um, speech or something. The fact that she was handing it over and you get a fantastic photograph and it was all seen on television, of course, you know, would have been considered to be um, a very, very high honour indeed. She's very good at, uh, at sort of throwing an aside. Very often, sometimes it's almost after the person has moved on, you know, she'll suddenly say something. But it, I mean, it's, if, it's as and when she wants to do it. Um, but that shows that she was having a good time enjoying it, as, as well she would have done, of course. Bobby Moore's ghostwriter, Nigel Clark, revealed what Bobby told him about that famous handshake and how he remembered that day for the rest of his life. So Bobby said, the Queen said, well done. And uh, a bit of a shy smile, Bobby in deference, a slight stiffly courteous bow, all very correct. And uh, he once said to me that he never, ever thought he would ever get that chance to become a superstar. Bobby had a scrapbook and it was in there, I've seen that, and uh, it came out on, on, on occasions when we had a few beers together. And, and uh, whatever, whatever people say about Bob, whatever people say about England, 1966, we became world champions. In 1966, Bobby Moore was the captain of the World Cup winning team. How bad is that? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of the TalkSport Daily is brought to you by Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Planning to hire or share a car or van? Enterprise is there every step of the way. Whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for, Enterprise can help. With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. The Majesty's love of Horses and horse racing is well known, and her influence on the sport is very much in the public eye. But it was a rare occasion to see the Queen at a football match. Talk Sports Royal Correspondent Rupert Bell explains how it was important to her to be present at Wembley that day. If you look at the Queen's life, clearly, you know, there's an obligation, duty for her to turn up at major sporting finals in this country. And if you look in the 50s, racing, she was the leading owner in this country. So clearly she went to racing all the time and the Royal Ascot meeting would always be forefront of her 
her life and, and what she did. So racing was clearly the most significant part of her life, but she knew that, yes, she had to go to other sporting occasions. Now, she went to the FA Cup final on numerous occasions would have uh, and attended the World Cup final, but it probably was more out of duty. It gets a feel for what the country's thinking about, because if, if there's sporting success, then it does definitely elevate the mood. And, of course, as the head of state... That all helps, you know, her and gives her something to understand what's going on in the country. In the hours after the final, the public's outpouring of national pride could be likened to the coronation night as the team bus was driven to a reception at the Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington past thousands of cheering fans. The players headed up to the hotel balcony where Bobby Moore held up the trophy to an absolutely tremendous roar from the crowd supporting the success of England that they would never forget. Everybody there was so delighted. Everybody was smiling. Everybody was talking about it. It was a very, very special occasion to be amongst that crowd and again to be amongst the players in the hotel. Let's hear from one of them, Gordon Banks, as to what he was feeling. We didn't know when the next World Cup was going to come up that we wouldn't win it. That's not the point. The point is it, it was the first one. You know, it was the first one that England had won first one that we'd won and uh, so that made that made our lives uh, and, and everything about us uh, completely different and uh, we, we, we realised how big it is you know and how it was shown all over the world and, and, and uh, everybody was, would be watching and, and it, it was just just wonderful really was. So Jeff Hurst spoke to Talk Sport about the magnitude of what they had achieved. When you're successful in your sport, in your particular field, any field, do something very significant, it puts elevate you as individual and a team amongst the greats because of the fact you've done something that nobody else has done in any walk of life. You understand how, how big it is when you're still getting people talking to you. And, and during this 50-minute walk I have in the park, I, I very rarely talk to anybody, I'm concentrating on doing the exercise, the odd person says, Good morning. I think more out of politeness than, than actually showing any recognition. But I found the day after we, we got to this, the semis, I think almost everybody I passed would say, Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. I had a cyclist chasing me down the road, trying to catch up with me to ask me what I felt about the tournament so far. Bobby Moore's ghostwriter, Nigel Clark, had a very close and personal relationship with the World Cup winning captain and explained how this World Cup win changed his life forever. Couldn't go anywhere without being stopped without being pestered, without being hugged. People wanted kisses, hugs, everything. And in his nice, lovely-natured way, he just accepted it, smiled and said, thank you very much. He said, how do you think I feel? He said, these people have come to me and personally congratulated me. He said, I can't do any more. He said, I'm just so grateful for what I've managed to do and I'm so grateful to have made people happy. And people were genuinely thrilled by what England had done. West Germany, after all, were our rivals. OK, it wasn't Wembley, which probably hadn't made a difference, but we had won the World Cup for the first time ever and Bobby was the captain. You can't beat that. So did home advantage count in England's favour? Sir Jeff Hurst believes that the talent in the squad would have made England contenders wherever the finals were played. It may, you could argue, have a, a slight advantage being at home, but I wouldn't think it's necessarily all important for the team to win. The team has to be the team 
even if they're playing in front of an away crowd or, or no crowd at all. So I, I firmly believe it's the, the quality of the team. It may have a home advantage, but uh, we were just a damn good team then. And I always call that team, when I look at, we have some, the greatest players of any era, Banks, Charlton, Moore, Greaves. I mean, they would compete mm. at any level for 150 years. And, in a, and a great manager. That they were, and the rest of the team, that he honed together over a period of three years, moving out people who didn't want to be part of it. He was finished up, and I've always issued the expression, a bunch of very, very hard-nosed professional people mm. and likeable, friendly people who we stayed with and saw each other every year, 20, 30 years after, with our, a couple of days with our wives, game of golf. So that team spirit and camaraderie was honed during that period of time. The whole feeling of the World Cup being won did certainly change the team. I mean, Ramsey was later going to be knighted. People were suggesting that right from the word go now because he, he put his head on the block and said, we will win this, and they did. And the belief was not only have we won it, but we would win it next time round as well. It's It wasn't until Euro 96 that the Queen was present again at a major football tournament. England were the hosts again and looking to end what had been known as 30 years of hurt. A great time to be an England footballer and a great time to be an England fan, you know, because the memories of it are just fantastic. And it's Within the stadium, it was a big party, and the, the song, you know, football's coming home, and all that. It was the flags, it was the colour, it was the song, it was the fact that you couldn't walk down a street and, and not be reminded that it was Euro 96. Of course, we'd all grown up in that time, but there was the same sort of feeling for Euro 96 as there had been at, at the World Cup. But this time, we knew we could win things. The team was a good one. The manager was an interesting character and a good one. And I think there was, a, there was an anticipation. And one addition was the fact that there was a song and the crowd at Wembley took over. You didn't have to say too much when there was nothing actually happening because you'd be listening to the music. The son's Martin Lipton was working at the tournament and recalls how society's attitude towards football had shifted since 1966. Well, it was always talked about as the working man's ballet, wasn't it? Which was a lovely phrase. I think things had changed. Remember, we were into the Premier League era, which was huge um, promotion of the game. There had been an explosion of interest in football after Italia 90, after those, you know, those scenes of Gazza's tears, which sort of took football back into the mainstream in, in many ways. And the belief that the Premier League was becoming a really good league, even if at that point England's results in, in Europe weren't quite matching up to that, was starting to grow. And I think that there is the, the sense of football becoming a truly primal passion was once again was on on the rise, but plenty didn't care. You know, it wasn't it wasn't at the start. The whole country was in, on tenterhooks seeing what will happen. That's not the case at all. As often, these things just grow and snowball and become bigger. At the start, it's quite a small ball that's rolling down the hill. There was a wave of optimism in the air. 
with the top manager, Terry Vanables, and stars such as Gaza and Shearer and Sheringham, many more, all vying for the opportunity to meet the Queen and get their hands on the European Championship trophy. We enjoyed some incredible highs that summer. A brilliant 4-1 win over Holland. Into the path of Darren Anderton. Oh, and a deflection and a super save. And Sheringham, it's four! And of course, who can forget Gaza's special goal against Scotland? Oh, here's Gascoigne. Gascoigne, he can finish it here! The entire nation was swept away with Euro 96 fever and with the Queen always firmly with her finger on the pulse of the nation's psyche, she would certainly have had a keen interest in what was happening. What I would say is as the tournament went on, particularly after the win over Holland, the whole atmosphere became remarkable. There was a a degree of fervency that I'd never witnessed before. It was that feel of summer and excitement which grew and grew and took over everything. It was leading the news. That's how, how big... And that had never happened in, in my life before, really, that England football was the story, the biggest story in the country. Belief was strong, but sadly, of course, it wasn't to be, as England lost to Germany in the semi-final on dreaded penalties. Andy Muller against David Seaman. And the Germans go into the final, and England are out. The dream is over for England and for Terry Venables on a penalty shootout, and it's Germany who meet the Czech Republic in the final here on Sunday. The Germans went on to win Euro 96, beating the Czech Republic 2-1 in the final at Wembley on June the 30th, 1996. Bierhoff is there. Can he turn? Can he find somebody else? Can he get a shot himself? It's in! Germany are European champions, and Oliver Bierhoff, who came on as a substitute, has scored both their goals. The Queen presented German captain Jürgen Klinsmann with the trophy. A smile to light up Wembley from Jürgen Klinsmann, had that fabulous year at Tottenham and is now victorious. But when he can stop shaking hands, he's going to actually take hold of the Henry Delaunay trophy. The Germans are champions. Klinsmann spoke to Talk Sport about that special moment. Just to, to, to shake her hand, I mean, for... I think for anyone on the planet would have been a very, very, very special moment. So it was for us as well. I mean, we were very well aware that, you know, in order to win a trophy of this magnitude, you need a little bit of luck. Uh, We had this type of luck in this, in a penalty shootout um, with, with England in the semifinals, you know, we've had it in 1990 as well, winning the world cup. We're, we're not kind of stupid, you know, and not recognizing, you know, that the other teams were kind of eye to eye with us. And then to enjoy that moment, kind of walking up the stairs at Wembley, seeing the green and getting handed over. Obviously those are moments that you will never, ever forget. Talk sports raw correspondent Rupert Bell told us how the queen would have felt handing over the Euro 96 trophy to Germany. When she handed in 96 to, to the victorious German team, no, the world had moved on. You just have to look at and think that, you know, that German team, you know, may have beaten us on, on penalties, but the fact is she would have known it was a job. It, you know, they probably, they were the best team. She would have known it was part of her job to do it. So to look beyond a wider, wider social significance, there would have been absolutely none. Um, well, you know, but she can look back 30 years prior to that. She was at the World Cup final when they we managed to beat the Germans in extra time. On to Euro 2020, which was played across the continent. And for the first time since 1996, the semi-final and final 
were held at Wembley Stadium. It was once again a joyous atmosphere with England making it all the way to the final. It's Sterling! And England are off and running! For the first time since the 1966 World Cup, England get out of the group of a major tournament without conceding a single goal. I don't think they are scared to play. I don't think they are scared of, uh, of responsibility. So uh, it's a very talented group. For the first time since the 1966 World Cup final, England have knocked a German side out of a major tournament. It's down to us. We're in the moment. We've got to grab it with both hands and, and don't let it go. It is Ukraine nil, England four into the last four. I've only got one thing left to say and it's come on England! How sweet is that roar? You better believe it! England are in a major final for the first time since 1966. They know that they can do it and that's really strong. You go into that game, you have to feel, you look around that group in that dressing room, you can rely on every single player. Saka against Dollar on the left, put it in! It just isn't meant to be. England despairing, defeated, and on penalties yet again. I think it would be fair to say that the country's feelings about whether England would make the final were far stronger than in 1966 or in 1996. Here's the son's Martin Lipton again. I thought they grew all the way through. But the thing I did notice was from the outset, there's a sense of expectation within those players now. They don't panic in the way England teams have always panicked. Under pressure, they stay true to themselves. They don't rush. They believe in the manager. They believe in the patterns of play. They believe in each other. They trust each other to come good. And it's, well, if Kane doesn't score, then Sterling will or somebody else will. The Queen wasn't present this time, but sent a good luck message and reflected on the time when she presented the World Cup trophy to England in 1966, a gesture which the manager, Gareth Southgate, much appreciated. Fantastic to have, obviously, the letter from the Queen, letter from the Prime Minister to all of the team and the recognition that the players and all of the staff have gone about this in the right way. We had a fabulous reception when we left St George's. All the local villages had come out and lining the route and people pulled over in laybys. And so you got more of a sense of what's going on outside the bubble that we've been in. It's important how we've represented people and we're pleased that that legacy has been there. Sadly, once again, England fell short and lost to Italy on penalties in the final. But once more, we saw a national sporting occasion uniting our society, and the Queen would have been delighted about that. Next, we'll look at the legacy the Queen leaves behind and how Prince William has taken the royal family's interest in football to another level. Prince William is, as it were, more genuinely interested in football than, than the Queen would have been. I mean, the Queen would have taken a, a, you know, a layman's interest in it, if you like. Although historically football hadn't been at the top of the royal family's agenda, it was acknowledged from within that it was important to show an interest in what the masses were enjoying. This was a phenomenon that started with the Queen's grandfather, George V, as royal historian Hugo Vickers explains to TalkSport. It's very interesting because Lord Stamfordham, who was George V's private secretary, 
and, and I think also Lord Wigram, who was advising him, I think they were very keen that King George V should be seen to enjoy the same sports as the vast uh, number of his, of his subjects, as they were then called. So certainly George V started going to rugby matches at Twickenham and things like that. And so he was to be seen, you know, in his bowler hat sitting there. And of course, people loved it that he was sharing the sport with them. The first football match the Queen attended was the 1953 FA Cup final, just a month before her coronation. It became known as the Matthews final, as the legendary winger Stanley Matthews, at the ripe age of 38, inspired his Blackpool team to a 4-3 comeback victory over Bolton Wanderers. There's the man who's really fighting for his cup medal. Could he score the winning goal now, himself? He's there! And where's Stanley Matthews? There's Joe Smith running on to There's Stanley. At long last, he's done it. And everybody cheering him. I don't know whether Stanley Matthews had a tear in his eye at the end of the final. He always claimed that it should have been called the Mortison victory because his colleagues called a hat-trick. But I know for a fact that when I interviewed him, there was certainly a tear in the eye when he recalled the final. Talk Sports Royal Correspondent Rupert Bell spoke about the importance of Her Majesty's presence on that day. It is and was always the biggest sporting event in the country. It mattered, and you can see from all the newsreels just how significant the FA Cup final was in the British sporting psyche of the time. Just before the coronation, we saw the start and the emergence of the explosion of television within this country because people for the coronation were renting TV sets, buying TV sets. Remember, at the time, we only had one TV station. If I'm not mistaken, they broadcast the FA Cup final live. So suddenly the final, and I think it was for the first time, it's suddenly being watched by you know hundreds of thousands. So the final for the Queen was a big shop window. The Matthews final went down in history as one of the most memorable matches at the Wembley Stadium. The image of a young Queen Elizabeth II presenting Stanley with the winner's medal is iconic. And in 1965... He became the first professional footballer to be knighted by Her Majesty while still an active player, age 50. The Queen wasn't present again at the FA Cup final until the 1970s. She watched in 1972 as Don Reavy's famous Leeds United beat Arsenal 1 0. Her Majesty the Queen, His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent, who is president of the Football Association. And McNabb only half stopping him. Jones getting it across. And Clark going in. And Alan Clark has put Leeds ahead. And Leeds have won the FA Cup for the first time. They group around Don Rivy. The Leeds fans go crazy. So Billy Bremner to get the cup from Her Majesty the Queen. The cup goes to Billy Bremner and Leeds United. Here's Rupert Bell again. Leeds and Arsenal, two of the big teams, Don Revy, two teams basically kicking, doing daylights out of each other. That was Leeds' mantra. The Queen might have been wincing at some of the tackles that went in from early doors. That was the DNA of Leeds and Arsenal of the time. There were some fairly feisty characters playing in that. Her Majesty was at Wembley again in 1976 in what was a classic FA Cup final between Southampton and Manchester United. As the Saints, who were in the second division, Upset the mighty Reds. Oh, look at this. Bobby Stokes. Hit well. Oh, he's there. Stokes has put Southampton in the lead. A great break there for Southampton. And he's done it. Southampton have won it. Bobby Stokes' goal has done it. Laurie McMenemy, emotional tears there. 
the underdogs have confounded them all and receiving it from the Queen. Peter Rodriguez, the cup for Southampton. The late Tommy Doherty was managing the Red Devils at the time and spoke to TalkSport. We felt not smug or overconfident, we just felt if Southampton play the best that they can and we play the best that we can, we'll win. On the day, we were beaten by the better side, I might add. Laurie McMenham is a lovely big man. It wasn't nice to get beat, but if you're going to get beat, you don't mind being beat when it's a nice person that beats you. And Southampton Football Club were always a lovely, with Ted Bates and people like that. They were always a nice club to go to and you were welcome and sometimes you got a good hiding and a cup of tea, but sometimes you got nothing at all. But they And it was nice to get beat with nice people, if you know what I mean. That big upset was the final time the Queen was at the FA Cup final presenting the trophy to the winners. As we look to the future, football is in an excellent position, especially with Prince William taking an active interest in on-field and off-field matters in his role as the FA president. The future king took over the role in May 2006, and it's something he takes seriously as the first royal to show genuine enthusiasm for the beautiful game. Here's TalkSport's royal correspondent, Rupert Bell. His involvement reflects the social change that has happened to the football fan now. It's all classes. Back in the early part of the reign, it was just... It would have been perceived, in inverted commas, as a working-class sport enjoyed by, you know, people um, from the towns, but not outside that. But clearly football now has evolved into all walks of life having more than just a passing interest and that is reflected in Prince William at the top. The, the social change from a football fan is a vastly different thing now. It embraces all walks of life. Since taking over the role in 2006, William has attended every FA Cup final and hands the trophy to the winning captain. He also made appearances in the England dressing room, notably most recently at Euro 2020, when he consoled the players and praised them for their efforts after the crushing penalty shootout defeat to Italy in the final. The future king has also supported important football campaigns, including Heads Up, a joint initiative with the FA, and the Heads Together charity, which seeks to raise awareness and encourage conversations around mental health, particularly among men. Former Watford striker and mental health advocate Marvin Sordell supported the Heads Up campaign with Prince William and they spend a lot of time together. And Sordell just lets it come over his shoulder and hits it with a curling effort with the outside of his left boot into the top left-hand corner. He's an incredible person, very interesting, very thoughtful as well. You know, obviously very measured with his words and everything like that, which you expect as someone who's going to be king one day. So that was obviously something that stood out to me straight away. I think just mostly the fact that he was just really interested in other people, you know, took the time to not just myself, but obviously all the crew and everyone that was there on the shoot. He took the time to, to speak to people and, and he was very generous with his time as well. He's tried to be a positive and, you know, influential, but also like a, a relatable as much as possible, you know, as much as a, a, a king can be a relatable person. Wynnum is clearly committed and enthusiastic about football attending matches with his young sons. Royal correspondent and Aston Villa fan Rupert Bell spoke about Prince William's love of the beautiful game 
and why he has ended up supporting the villa. Prince William obviously has never hidden his light under a bushel when it comes to supporting Aston Villa, which may not be an obvious choice because brought up in London, you'd have thought, and going to the kind of schools that he did, that he would have been a you know a Chelsea fan. Any team in London, he probably might have gone done the obvious route and become a Manchester United fan. But no, he had the good sense to choose Aston Villa and has shown a definite passion. And when he goes, you know, you can see that it means a lot to him and, and he celebrates as a genuine football fan. And I think that is very good for the sport because at least he comes at it seeming to care. It's clear that the more recent generations of the Royal family have taken a keener interest in football. And Royal historian Hugo Vickers explained why he thinks this might be. Prince William is, as it were, more genuinely interested in football than, than the Queen would have been. I mean, the Queen would have taken a, a, you know, a layman's interest in it, if you like. And I think he, he obviously really does enjoy it. And of course, time has moved on. Things are much more informal now. So you get them you know, kicking balls around with the team. And, but of course, uh, once again, it, it, it's, it's this sort of identifying with the joy of the nation, isn't it? And if you see a father and son, Sort of um, clapping and or you know um, high fiving or or any of those sort of things and, and enjoying it. That's exactly what they should do. In summary, I would like you, the listener, right now in your head, to just picture that image of Her Majesty the Queen handing Bobby Moore the Jules Rimet trophy. Her Majesty the Queen, Bobby Moore comes up to receive the Jules Rimet. For England, only 12 inches high, solid gold, and it means England are the world champions. It's iconic, and it doesn't even matter if you weren't born then. It doesn't matter what generation you come from. You will have a picture, an image in your head. It's a unique moment in the country's history. England have not had a World Cup on home soil since. They've not won a World Cup since. So it makes that iconic moment even more unique and special. And here comes Hurst, he's got some people are on the pitch, they think it's all over. It is now, it's four. And this might sound like a criticism of Prince William, and I certainly don't mean it to be. But because he takes such an active interest in his England role, his presence at games has become almost too familiar, and we take it for granted somewhat and that this person, who will be king one day, is attending these games. That's a remarkable thing, of course, and I'm not underestimating that at all. But the fact that the Queen only attended a handful of these games makes those memories, those moments, those images, all the more special. It now gives me great pleasure to declare open the eighth World Football Championship. And receiving it from the Queen. And where's Stanley Matthews? There's Stanley, at long last he's done it. And everybody cheering him. Thank you for listening to Her Majesty and 66 on Talk Sport with me, Mary Davis.
The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever your mission, home or away, don't delay. Enterprise has the vehicle for the job. Rent from the best lineup in the UK. With over 450 branches, Enterprise has what your business needs. From compact three-door cars to spacious SUVs and people carriers to vans, they offer a large range of reliable vehicles perfect for the job. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.